true grace is an intricate part of God's absolute truth. You do not have grace without truth, and you do not have truth without God's grace, because grace is very much embedded in the divine nature of the Godhead. It is an intricate component of who they are. The Father is gracious. The Son is gracious. And so is the Holy Spirit gracious toward us. Grace, in its truest sense, originates, originates with God. It does not originate with us. It originates with our creator, and therefore it flows from heaven's throne upon earth. The word itself is described in the New Testament as the word of God's grace, and it is that word of God's grace that is able to build us up and also to grant us the inheritance you know, to those who are sanctified. We define grace often as a bestowing or a bestowal of an unearned favor or an undeserved gift. And and that is a good definition of what grace involves. But could there be more to the concept of grace as it relates to the nature of God? And that's what I want us to touch on a little bit tonight. The idea of God's character that is expressed with the concept of grace and how that is to be seen in our lives as well. As redeemed children of God, as Christians, you and I are beneficiaries. We are beneficiaries of grace. That is, we have been saved by grace through faith. And so, should not recipients of grace be motivated, should, should we not each of us be motivated in turn to cultivate grace as part of our daily character? For example, we are called to be holy. We know that. Why? Why are we called unto holiness? It's because God is holy. We are also called to be merciful. Once again, why? Why are we called unto mercy? Well, because God is merciful. And so therefore, we are likewise called to be gracious because God is gracious toward us. In Titus chapter 2, we're going to start there. In Titus chapter 2 with our first passage this evening, I begin with the idea that grace is a teacher. Grace is a teacher of godly changes. Yes, grace is a gift, and we are recipients of God's grace. We are recipients of God's gifts, but grace is also a teacher to us all. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared. It has appeared, and what, what, has it, what has it accomplished? What is it doing? Well, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. Grace is instructing us. It is teaching us 
to deny ungodliness and worthy desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So here we have the idea of the gift of salvation, but the gift of salvation is intended to direct our lives in such a way that we walk in the divine light of righteousness. God's grace has appeared and it's embodied and revealed through the only begotten Son, and it has brought salvation and offers salvation to all men who would turn to Jesus. But at the same time, that grace is a teacher. It is instructing us about some things that need to be changed. And so, yes, God's grace does give gifts. We have received gifts from God, our creator, our redeemer, our father, because of grace. And those graces that we have received for him, those gifts that we have received and should be stirring up our hearts in such a way that we want to turn away from the ungodly way of life. And we want to pursue the things that are right and good and holy. The righteous things that it talks about here in verse 12 when he says, live sensibly, live righteously, and live godly in the present age. Grace's lessons are, for, are all for our transformation. That's grace. Grace is teaching us not only that we have received gifts from God, and we are beneficiaries of these gifts, but grace is also teaching us that it's about a life of change. That those lessons are intended to change each one of us and make us more like God and more like Jesus and more like the Holy Spirit. In verse you know, 13 and, and 14 talks about redemption and purification. And so, yes, redemption and purification in Christ, in Jesus, our Savior, should be doing what? Well, that redemption and that purification should be producing a harvest of good deeds that ultimately are unto God's glory. See, that's, that's the goal. And what we have here is just another way of grace at work in us. Another way of grace at work through us. You know, God's grace is not only to be seen in the only begotten who died on the cross for our sins, but God's grace is also to be seen in you and in me as that grace changes us and molds us unto God's likeness. For example, over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 you have a verse that gives us instruction and exhortation about an aspect of worshiping God. 
And the verse reads, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual song, singing with grace in your hearts to God. Some version may read, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And the point I simply want to make is this idea, here is grace, but it is grace that's coming from you. It's not talking about the grace that God has sent down to you, but it's talking about the grace that should be out, overflowing or outflowing from your heart. Grace ought to be flowing from our hearts when we worship the eternal one, when we worship the one who has richly blessed us beyond what we deserve. We should have hearts filled with his word and that heart that's filled with the word in turn should be singing to God, but singing with grace in our hearts to him. The word grace there is the same word when talking about God's grace. It's simply spelled C-H-A-R-I-S, charis or cheris. It's the same word. And so you think about it, he's okay, God's grace We are saved by God's grace through faith. But then at the same time, there is that same kind of grace that is to be evident in those, as described here in chapter 3, individuals who have been raised up with Christ and have been made alive with Christ, those individuals should be singing with grace in their hearts to God. So the question we could ask ourselves is this, what favorable gift what favorable gift does our creator does our redeemer does our father above need our god what favorable gift does our god need from us when in one sense he doesn't need anything from you act 17 brings that out quite well when paul is is preaching there in athens So in one sense, no, there's nothing he needs from you. But the point is, he desires this grace that flows from your heart. Hebrews 13 talks about the fruit of the lips and how the fruit of the lips are a sacrifice of praise. And that we are called to do that through, that is through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of, of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. When we sacrifice genuine praise to God, he says, that is a grace that pleases him. And that's what he desires from us. He desires from each and every one of us when we sing is that we sing with grace in our hearts. This, this charis or cheris, that needs to be flowing from our hearts because we are beneficiaries of his grace. In turn, we express a similar grace in our worship of him. Colossians also talks about grace in another context. And you look over in Colossians chapter 4 now, Colossians chapter 4, where Christian speech is to be always seasoned with grace. Our speech, our words are to be always with grace. 
And so reading those two verses, it says, verse five, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So here we are being instructed, being exhorted to say, when you talk, make sure there's grace with it. May, there, may your responses be spoken with grace, whoever it is. You think about that. In Acts 20, it is where we're told that it is the word of God's grace that's going to build you up. And he's going to give you the inheritance that is granted to the sanctified. So you have the idea that God's word is the word of grace. It is the communication of grace. And so my thought question is simply this. If I am imitating how God communicates, if God communicates in a manner that is with grace, and I am to be a reflection of God, of his holiness, of his mercy, therefore I shouldn't should not also my words carry that same characteristic? If God's word is a word of grace, then what should my word be? It likewise should be, cult be being cultivated to become a word of grace. Now, controlling everything we communicate at every moment in every situation, is extremely difficult. It's hard. It is difficult. It is hard to make sure that every time you open your mouth, it is with grace. Now, James writes about the challenge of the tongue to all of us in James chapter 3. And it makes the point there in reminding us that, in particularly in verse 2, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect, a mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Who has never stumbled in what he has said? Who has never stumbled in what you have said? Can you say that about yourself? That you have never stumbled in what you've said? I think I could confidently express the fact that we would all say, well, none of us have done that. There's only one. There's only one person who walked in the flesh who never stumbled in what he said, and that's Jesus Christ. The, o the only man who is tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. To the point, even describes it, that there is a man who spoke without guile. He spoke in purity. And so, you know, we are reminded of the, how, how hard this really is. You know, being able to season every time we speak with grace is a challenge that takes a lifetime of working on and cultivating and trying to refine and improve and maybe prune this and that. 
In James 3, it talks about the tongue and how challenging it is and describes that tongue in some very graphic ways. And the fact that our tongue can be a world of iniquity, that it can be a restless evil, and that it can be a deadly poison. Those are all expressions that the Holy Spirit uses to describe the tongue of, of man. That it, the tongue is a world of iniquity, it is a restless evil, and it is a deadly poison. The fact that that's true about man's speech, man's tongue, does not exempt us, nor does it excuse us from accountability for every word we speak. Just because that's true, just because it is hard to bridle, it is hard to control our speech, doesn't mean, oh, I, you know, no one's been, been able to do it, so it's okay, you know. Well, no, that's not the point at all here, is it? It's not okay. And so Paul, back in Colossians chapter 3, reminds the saints in Colossae and is still reminding the saints in the 21st century that our response always needs to, you know, to be with grace. And that is so hard to do all the time. But just because it is hard, it is difficult to bridle our words all the time. That does not mean that I cannot bridle my words. Just because it's hard doesn't mean I can't do it. Nor does it mean that I'm not accountable for working to do that striving to bridle my words and striving to adorn my words with grace because that's the Lord's commandment in Colossians 3. He says, let your speech you know, be such that it's as if it's been seasoned with grace, that you've added this to your words so it, the flavor of it is much more palatable, much more enjoyable. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10, as you note there in the PowerPoint, that Solomon penned these words by the Holy Spirit when he said, words in the mouth of a wise man are gracious. And that's true. That's very true. The words of a wise man are gracious. And he contrasts that with while the lips of a fool consume him and the beginning of his talking is folly. And that's exactly what we're not supposed to do. That's not the path we're to go down. We're to try to go down the path of wisdom. And so every person and every situation is different. It's not like, okay, you know, you, you, there's this little formula here, you know, and this one little formula is going to match every situation and everything. You know, that's, that's just not the case, is it? That's where wisdom comes in. As, as we talked a little bit, and Bill pointed out well, the idea of skillful living and the challenge of having skillful living with other words is, is definitely one that we are all working on you know, continually to do better at. But when you consider that idea, you know, every person and every situation is different. So how, how can I make sure that when I respond and I speak in that situation, you know, it is with grace? Well, first of all, I need to listen. I need to listen openly. 
I need to listen. And then secondly, I need to consider thoughtfully before I respond. I first need to listen. And then secondly, I need to consider thoughtfully. And it is then I should respond by speaking the truth in love. That's simple to say. And you already know that. That's nothing new to to any of you. Yeah, as believers of God and Jesus Christ and servants of the King. Yeah, I'm not saying anything that you don't already know, but it's simply a reminder that we need to listen openly, consider thoughtfully, and then speak the truth in love. I would suggest to you that there are some qualities that are associated with a gracious response. First of all, a gracious response is going to be with humility and kindness and gentleness. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, it's describing the character of those who are chosen of God in Christ. And so those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, they have been cleansed by the power of God's grace and now have been added to God's family. And here they are, they are God's chosen, they are God's elect. And what should be evident in their character? Well, these are some of the attributes. And so a gracious response, as taught in Colossians 4, would reflect these qualities, that what would be present is humility, kindness, and gentleness. But also there should be a sense of self-reflection. Galatians 6 talks about, you know, going to a brother who has been, who is entangled in sin, and you're going to him to bring him out of the darkness back into the light. And so it talks about how, what our attitude and our approach should be there. And then he says, looking at yourself. So a gracious response, not only is one with humility and kindness and gentleness, but also it is done with self-examination, with a sense of looking at yourself at the same time. But then thirdly, I think you cannot help but you know, consider the thoughts of Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about the Christ-mindedness that we are to adorn our life with and how we, how we look at each other, how we treat one another, and how, what kind of interest we should have in regard for one another. And so our, a gracious response is going to be one with the other person's well-being at heart. And so, as recipients of God's grace... There's no way we can pay God back for the gifts he is constantly bestowing on us. But that grace needs to be seen in us as well. That there should be this idea of we are growing in and partaking of the nature of God in the sense that we reflect not only his holiness, not only his mercy, but also we reflect his grace in our life. When we worship, when we speak, but also when we treat each other in different ways. We need to treat others with the grace that you would like to receive from others. Luke chapter 6 is during the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus said, treat others the same way you, would, you, know, you want them to treat you. And we call this often the golden rule, very applicable principle to be used in in every situation we find ourselves in this world. But you think about that. 
You know, we want people to be nice to us. We want people to be polite to us. We want people, you know, to respect us. You know, that's, that's understandable. We all want that kind of treatment for others. And the simple point is, so, you know, that's how I should treat others. Whether they treat me that way or not is not the point. The point, if, if I would like for, to receive that, the point is I need to initiate that. I need to treat people this way no matter what because that's what I would like to receive. And so same thing with the idea of grace. If we want to be, you know, to be extended grace from other people, then we need to be showing that grace to others. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in 1 Peter chapter 3, we are told that a husband and his wife are fellow heirs of the grace of life. It's a very interesting thought. That a husband and his wife are fellow heirs of the grace of life. I'll read that one verse where he's addressing husbands and some responsibility they have to their wife. And he says, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as was someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. In the family arena, grace is definitely needed, is it not? In the home, as you live day in, day out, and you experience all the ups and downs that life brings on us, grace definitely needs to be present in that family relationship. Because all family members need grace every day. All of the family members need grace every day, not just from God, but from one another as well. And so therefore, you know, all members of that family need to be showing and sharing and extending grace to one another. And I think we, we understand that concept. I want to just think a little bit here when it talks about the idea of how the husband and wife are fellow heirs of the grace of life. In one sense, if both spouses are Christians, if both spouses have been cleansed by the blood of Christ and they've been brought into fellowship with their God and their Savior, in that sense, they are joint heirs. They are fellow heirs together with Christ, waiting together to obtain their inheritance in heaven. So that's one sense that you can look at this, that we are fellow, fellow heirs of the grace of life in a spiritual way if we are both Christians. But also I think you can suggest there's another way, you know, in, in a physical sense, in a physical sense, there, you know, there's a sense where all husbands and all wives are sharers of graces in this life which come from our Father above. You know, God sends the sun and the rain around everybody. And God blesses, you know, people in this world, even those who do not serve him. God is rendering certain blessings that are graces. They are gifts from the creator. And so in that sense as well, I think, in a physical sense, 
all married couples, definitely spiritually, we are heirs of the greats of life eternally, but also I think physically we're sharers of these life gifts that we have on a daily basis because we have a God of light who bestows upon mankind good gifts, and what comes from him is always good. So, the point is, in this passage is, okay, husbands, that's the point. Husbands, your wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life with you. And so as beneficiaries and as sharers of grace, spiritually or physically, husbands are being told, take careful consideration to treat your wife in a manner that honors her in a way that acknowledges the grace that unites you two together. That's the point. And so husbands, be gracious. Be gracious. Why is that? Because you are joint heirs of the grace of life. If you're both Christians, you're joint heirs spiritually. You're one in Christ. And you have an anchor that is anchoring you to eternal home. But also physically, there are graces, there are gifts, there are blessings you receive because of that God-ordained relationship and the blessings that come just day in and day out because God is sustaining the universe. There are other graces that you share. And because of that, he says, husbands, make sure, make sure you treat your wife in a way that acknowledges that you share grace with her. Our last passage I want us just to very briefly look at and read is found in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter five. And what we find, at least in, in, in my judgment here, is the idea that godly grace raises the bar. It really does. Because godly grace is going to extend even at times when it may be hard to extend that grace. So in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, looking there first of all in verse, verse 38, where grace is going to act or grace is going to react above the worldly norm. Grace is not going to simply do what the world expects. Grace is going to do Better than that. Grace is going to go beyond that. It's going, to, it's going to, it raises the bar. And so, for example, here in verse 38, Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. You've heard that saying. In verse 39, he said, but I say to you, in contrast to what you've heard, I have something else to say about this matter. I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. 
Have you ever wrestled with that passage? Is this an easy text to swallow and to understand and to apply? No, it's not easy. What will enable you to do what Jesus says you need to do when these kind of situations happen? Grace. When we have clothed ourselves with the character of God, the character of God's grace, when we have taken God's nature and we have truly, we are, we are making that nature our own, that we are clothing ourselves with grace, not only in the sense we sing with grace in our hearts to God and worship to him, but also our words are seasoned with grace, but also when we treat other people in very difficult situations, we're going to show grace when the world would not even consider it for a second. Do I have an answer for every possible scenario that you could you know, you know, make up and imagine? No, I don't. But I do know that Jesus expects us to raise the bar. And he expects us to extend grace when maybe it's someone who doesn't deserve it. Grace thinks less of oneself and willingly sacrifices for someone else here. That's what grace does. It thinks less of oneself and then sacrifices for someone else and even a so-called undeserving stranger. That's hard. But when we understand the grace we have received and the calling of grace that we have been called to live, then we need to do the best we can to live it. This chapter goes on even further, I think, to, to suggest some similar ideas as it talks further about how grace is not going to despise and grace is not going to even, it's not going to mis mistreat an enemy. And so, you know, you know, whether the, you know, the previous verses were an enemy or not, but in the next verses is a definite enemy. And so beginning, picking up there in verse 43, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Once again, that's what you've heard. And Jesus said, but I say to you, the one who's Lord of lords and King of kings, son of God, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. That's not a compliment. And he goes on, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? That's, well, again, that's not a compliment. He's asking us to do more. And so therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Here, the instruction is love your enemy. Love your enemy. Do not despise him. Do not mistreat him. What is going to enable you, empower you to be able to love this person who is your enemy? Grace. When we have truly 
taking on grace and, and, and we are making it a daily component of our character. Yeah. When grace is part of who we are because we are God's sons. You know, grace is being extended even at times when reciprocation is unlikely. You don't extend grace just because you expect grace in return. That's not why you do it. You know, when did God love you? When did God love the world? Before. Before anyone learned to love him. And there's some people God loves and offers grace that spit in God's face. And God still offers it to them. He doesn't, he's not reciprocated every time. He grants grace and gifts to mankind. But grace is what overcomes evil. It overcomes evil by not growing weary and doing good, even to the people that, well, they don't like you, they hate you. In Romans 12, verse 20 and, 20, 20, you know, 20 and 21, you know, the closing to verses talks about some of the same you know, concepts that are brought out in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 there. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's grace. That's a gift. It's favor that's unearned, maybe even in a sense undeserved. But he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. And for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Your goal is not to heap burning coals on his head. That's not the goal. The point is your goodness may achieve more than anything else you could do. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. What empowers us to overcome evil with good? It's when we have taken on God's nature, or at least we're trying to cultivate God's nature in our daily life, and truly exemplify grace, not only in our words, but also in our actions. In God's grace, there's no question about that, is just truly amazing. There's not enough words to truly explain how great and amazing God's grace is. And we, you know, we have hymns that do a good job you know, helping us. But even that falls short of really the awesomeness and the magnitude of God's grace. And we are undeserving of it. We are undeserving of God's grace, but we are in need of that grace. And God offers it to us. And so the point is, is to understand as beneficiaries of such a great gift, such an enormous favor bestowed upon us, we need to take that godly grace and it needs to be growing in us as well so that like God, you know, we extend, we share grace with all those with whom we interact, whether in a, a momentary encounter that may never repeat itself again, or whether it's in a more of a relation where you're kind of traveling companions in this life. You're going to be, you're going to be traveling together for a while. 
And so even in that situation, not just in the momentary times, but also in the times when you, you have to walk a long road together, he says, adorn your life with grace. Because that's what God does. He adorns your life with his grace. So share that same grace with others. Thank you very much for your kind attention tonight. I hope the lesson has been somewhat challenging and thoughtful and reflective as well. But definitely want to extend our Lord's invitation of grace. Have you been cleansed and saved by God's grace in Christ Jesus? Have you? Have you begun to partake of the goodness of that grace by receiving the forgiveness of your sins? If not, we want you to do that tonight. We want to encourage you to do that tonight. It's what God wants for you. It's what Jesus wants for you, and it's what the Spirit wants for you is that your heart would be opened up to him and that you would come to understand that he is offering you a gift that you can never earn, that you can never gain on your own. But it's an eternal gift of salvation, life in Christ. If we can help you to put on Jesus by con hearing your confession of faith that he is the son of God, you know, with your, the repentance of your sins and helping you being baptized in Christ, we'd love to do that tonight. But if you are a Christian and there is sin in your life that you are, are very much aware of and you need, realize you need to change and you need the assistance of your brethren, we invite you as well. Whatever your spiritual need may be, be please come forward now while we stand and sing the song that's been selected.